We have come to Second Samuel 23. <clears throat> Shall we begin with prayer? Our Father, we are sobered by the realization of the treachery of the world in which we live. And for that reason, we enter into this passage with great thanksgiving because of the glory of the king and the kingdom, which is described here. We thank you for the warriors of its triumph, guardians of its expansion, which in that earthly manifestation was but a faint replica of the marching conquest of the Lord Jesus against the spiritual powers of wickedness of this present evil age. David looked by faith to that great ruler, and indeed he saw his day and rejoiced. We have seen it and rejoice the more greatly. We thank you that we belong to a kingdom which is not of this world, ruled by a king of absolute truth, absolute righteousness, and absolute moral integrity. How we thank you for King Jesus. In his precious name, amen. The last words of David provide a poetic counterpart to the song of exaltation in the previous chapter. Two poems are at the center of the chiastic macrostructure of 2 Samuel 21 to 24. I've repeated that on your handout so that you can be reminded of the overall pattern. As the poem in chapter 22 is a lengthy song extolling the Lord's power, his steadfastness, his saving grace, and enabling, indeed, transforming love. Compare Psalm 18, verse 1. So this poem in chapter 23 is a taught song, contrasting the righteous king with the man of Belial, verse 6, the worthless troublemaker and the political scoundrel. We have moved from eloquent peon, chapter 22, to succinct ideal, chapter 23, from the exhilaration of God's majestic character to the character of the one whose ruling house must match the integrity of the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel. This poem is an idealization and thus projects an eschatological king. And yet it is a realization in measure and thus reflects a protological king. It is a poem about character, the character of the ruler, 
the character of the man who rules after God's own heart. Second Samuel 23, 1-7 is about the character of the one who rules over men in the fear of the Lord. As David's putative last words, we realize there is no attempt to mislead us. The just ruler would never intentionally mislead his subjects. David will speak many words yet as his story draws to its close, But these poetic expressions in chapters 22 and 23 represent the expression of his final testimony, his lasting valedictory. What will define his life at its end as he extols his God and his covenant? It is conceivable that these seven verses are the last poetic words David committed to parchment or to the scroll of the corpus of his psalms. We may understand, as one writer has suggested, that this is David's last literary legacy, his final poetic legacy. Or, as another scholar has noted, these may be the last words of David to be incorporated into First and Second Samuel. On either interpretation, we are reading something from David's poetic heart, which finalizes, brings to its last expression, the characteristic legacy of the Lord's anointed covenantal ruler. The psalm does not have any discernible structure, at least not discernible to me. However, what the Hebrew text does display is a series of repetitions and oppositions. The opposition contrasts David's house with Belial, or the worthless man, in verse 6. As it contrasts the righteous ruler with the scoundrel. That antithesis is lined out in the nature imagery. The thorns, verse 6, over against the tender grass of verse 4. We are reading about opposed principles of governing people, one which inflicts pain and threatens to curse the nation, the other which refreshes the people as the rising sun on a day without clouds, refreshes them so that they grow, flourish, become verdant as the grass after rain. The repetitions stream from the words of David, which the spirit of the Lord spoke within him, words which the rock of Israel spoke to him. 
words which are, in fact, oracular declarations from the son of Jesse, the man raised on high. Whose words are these? David's words? Yes, and they are at the same time the oracles of the God of Jacob, who is the God of Israel, who is the rock of Israel, who is God with David. Im El, verse 5, Immanuel, Emmanuel. A rich, nuanced reiteration of the names of God are found here. Elohe, Yahweh, Elohim, El, the profound repetitive vocabulary of God who is a spirit. You will observe the parallel between God of Jacob and God of Israel, Jacob and Israel, synonymous. We discover a repetition of the word rules in verse 3 and the word mourning in verse 4. There is a repeated rhetorical question which begins verse 5, is not, And there is a rhetorical question which ends, verse 5, will not. And that pattern of the rhetorical question returns in the adversative section, in verse 6, where it no longer has the force of an interrogative, but is a pointed declarative. For not can thorns be taken in hand. Radical adversative. The final repetition to note is the double prepositional phrase in verse 5. For or because he has made an everlasting covenant. And for or because, key clause in the Hebrew, all my salvation and all my desire. You will also notice the double all in those two clauses as well. Repetitions and duplications. Though no organized structure emerges from the Hebrew text, I do perceive patterns, patterns of repetition and opposition. Those patterns reinforce in a duplicate, emphatic manner, the just character of the one who rules as David ruled in the fear of God. The character of the just ruler is opposed to the character of the one who rules in wickedness, like bloodletting thorns hurled against a nation under the curse. The curse of the ruler who, like the thorns, cannot be touched by the nation, cannot be touched by the nation without pain. 
Last week, I argued that 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 is poetic narrative biography. That is, the poetic chapter is actually steeped in reflections upon David's career. His story in the psalm mirrored back over his career. Using the same literary approach with the first seven verses of 2 Samuel 23, let's think again about the vocabulary of these stanzas in terms of David's narrative biography. Let's see what you see of David's career in these verses. What do you see as we begin in that phrase, son of Jesse? Takes you back. You're nodding your head, Pat. When you nod your head, I pay attention. Where is it taking you back? To his childhood, and where's his hometown? He's taking you back to Bethlehem. And when did we first meet David in Bethlehem? <clears throat> Bill, what chapter? First Samuel 16. And so <clears throat> this patronymic, <clears throat> which son of Jesse is patronymic, <clears throat> that is, he is the father of, this patronymic takes us back to Bethlehem in 1 Samuel 16, the first time we met David. He goes all the way back to the beginning of his life, his career, his appearance in the narrative, a narrative ripple that goes all the way back to Samuel and his brothers and this lad keeping watch over his father's flocks. And what was done to him on that occasion? He was designated as the Lord's anointed. He was designated as, come on Calvinists, he was designated as the elect of the Lord, the chosen of God. A phrase which is used of him routinely throughout the Old Testament, if you knew your Bible. Of course, he is called God's elect. And so that election or choice is made when we first learn that he is the son of Jesse. And so the narrative ripple here takes us not only back to his childhood, back to his pastoral career, back to his anointing, back to his election. Because the elector has elected him. And the mirror ripple of the one who has chosen is shown in the one who has been chosen. The mirror of the ripples flows out of the narrative Biography as the biography flows out of union with God. The next phrase. <clears throat> the man raised on high. 
What had he said in the previous chapter, in his previous poem about... Take a look at verse 14 in that chapter. What had he said? Anyone? God most high, the God most high, who has raised this man, David, on high. Here we have the upward spiral. It is the upward spiral of David's career because he's been elevated to a position of high rule and authority by the highest ruler and the highest authority. The narrative ripple is a reflection of the union with God. The next phrase What do you see next in that first verse? Before that. The anointed. What's the Hebrew for anointed, Carol? Don? Terry? What's the Hebrew for anointed? Come on, George Frederick Handel, friends. Ben? Messiah. Mashiach. Okay, Messiah. Now that's anointed in Hebrew, so here he is affirming that he has been anointed. He is the Messiah. And, of course, that takes us back to 1 Samuel 16. The anointer of the anointed is reflected in the unction poured out upon David. And now to Carol. The sweet psalmist or sweet singer. Which also takes us back to Pat? The, the boy shepherd. The boy shepherd. True. Um, when do we first hear him singing? Is he when he's calming Saul. What chapter is that? Mm-hmm. Bill. First, first Samuel 17. 16. <clears throat> 17 is Goliath. <clears throat> okay. All right. So we're back to first Samuel 16 again for him being brought to Saul, <clears throat> which leads us to the next one. What narrative ripple do we have in that phrase? The spirit of the Lord. Why was he brought to sing to Saul? The evil spirit had come upon Saul, and in contrast to what had come upon Saul, what had come upon David? The spirit of the Lord. We're back to 1 Samuel 16 once again. And that spirit which is in him is from the spirit which proceeds from the Lord. The mirror reflection and the singing that he intones proceeds from the great singer who sings over him. The next phrase. The rock of Israel reflects what? Pre- 
previous chapter, correct. Second Samuel 22, God who is the rock. And that rock steadfastness of the Lord is what anchors David. The next phrase, the one who rules. When had he become ruler over Israel? He was first ruler over Hebron, correct? But he then becomes ruler over Israel where? In Jerusalem in what chapter? 2 Samuel 5. His rule over united Israel is a reflection of the heavenly ruler who rules over him. The next ripple is that word righteously or justly. That's perhaps the most difficult one for you to associate. But in 2 Samuel 8.15, we are told that David ruled in justice and righteousness. The mirror of the just and righteous ruler of heaven and earth. Verse 4, that image of light. What does that reflect? Once again, the previous chapter, verse 29, the Lord is my lamp. He illumines me. The light of the Lord enlightens the path of David. And finally, verse 5, what phrase jumps out at you there as a narrative ripple, a mirror reflection? Come on, all you Calvinists. The everlasting covenant. What chapter, Ben? Bill? Second Samuel 7. The everlasting covenant with the house of David. I don't want to leave out the phrase, my salvation, there in verse 5. That is retrospective to chapter 22 again, where the word salvation and Savior occurs over and over again in that psalm. The one who saves is reflected in the one who has been saved. My point here is the words or vocabulary of this poem trigger biographical or autobiographical mirrors in David's relationship in history, in his story of the character of the Lord reflected in his history, in his story. These terms are derived from his concept of being joined to the life of the Lord God, whom he has extolled ecstatically in chapter 22. He is a blessed possessor of God's blessings, election, anointment, a singing, God's spirit, God's rock solid steadfast, God's rule, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's light, God's eternal covenant, God's salvation. All of this 
has been attested in David's narrative history. In his last words, he sums it all up, looks back upon it, reinforces it, recalls it, makes us realize that the end of his life ripples back with joyous memories of his life in the Lord. David sings this final song out of the experience of his heart, the experience of his life. He sings it with bullet points to the Lord's interface with his objective experience in history. Second Samuel 23, 1 to 7, alongside Second Samuel 22, is poetic narrative biography, autobiography. Now, in addition to the similarity of genre, 2 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23, 1-7 are both poetry. You will notice the similarity between the last verse of chapter 22 and the first verse of chapter 23. And as you notice the similarity, what do you observe? You see anointed in both verses, verse 51 and verse 1. What else do you see? Who is the anointed? The name David in 51, the name David in verse 1. We have, therefore, a double hook pattern. A hook pattern at the end of 22, which begins 23, tying the two poems together as a seamless, poetic, narrative reflection. The last words of David have been hooked to the great psalm of David, which climaxes his career. Both texts, climactic expressions of the sweet singer of Israel. Was there a question? Don't you have a genealogical connection too? The words are not exactly the same. Okay, I'm looking for uh, verbal parallels, exact duplicates in the Hebrew text. Yes, the idea is there, the word is seed actually in 51. So son would be, you know, one of the Seed is going to uh, be productive, but nonetheless, uh, I'm looking for exact hooks. All right, now chapter 23 begins with an unusually long superscription. Verses 1 and 2 are an autobiographical summary to which is added an inspirational identity. This is very unusual. It's one of the most lengthy superscriptions in any of inspired scripture. Verse 1 is autobiographical. What I mean by superscription is this is not the poem itself yet. First two verses are descriptive. Okay, They're above the writing of the poem. The poem begins in verse 3. Okay, verse 1 is autobiographical. Verse 2 is a statement that David speaks by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One older writer finds the Trinity in verses 1 to 3. 
God the Father, God of Israel, God of Jacob, God the Son, Rock of Israel, God the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Lord. Quaint, quaint, even if it is not convincing. The autobiographical verse 1 tells us, first of all, the patronymic. Now, you'll see that word on your the second sheet of your handout, patronymic, meaning father of. And you'll see it uh, juxtaposed with gentilic, meaning from nation of or from location of. Okay, the technical kind of vocabulary, but it's an easy way to talk about paternity and uh, place of origin. The patronymic in verse 1, son of Jesse, this last end of David recalls, as we noted, the first appearance of David in the house of his father, keeping watch over the flocks at Bethlehem. Son of Jesse here is not a phrase of contempt. It is not a phrase of contempt as it was with Nabal or Shiva. It is a declaration of his beloved father and his humble pastoral beginnings. The second note is raised on high, his elevation to be the ruler of Israel. The upward spiral of his career returns and climaxes in these seven verses. Number three, he was anointed Mashiach, Messiah. The unction of God poured out upon him, the unction of the God of the fathers. Notice what he does here. Jacob and Israel. David not only traces his line back to his father, but to the father of fathers, the patriarch out of whom has arisen Jesse and David and all the fathers of Israel in between. This messianic king roots his descent to the previous millennium, back to his national patriarchs. The line that flows to David of Judah flows all the way from Jacob of Israel. Personal father, Jesse. National father, Yaakov, Jacob. Fourth autobiographical reflection here is that phrase, sweet singer or sweet psalmist of Israel, an expression altogether appropriate at the climax of David's sweet, poetic career. David looks back over the 75 or 78 psalms in the Psalter, which he sweetly intoned unto the Lord. How sweetly they sing still, though there are sweet Sweet hymns to be intoned unto the Lord as well as the inspired apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4.19 and Colossians 3.16. I commend to you Professor Scott Sanborn's work on inclusive psalmody. Inclusive psalmody which includes more than the songs of the poorer administration and dispensation. Songs of the age of resurrection and glorification. 
that work in the December 2008 issue of KRUKS, the Journal of Northwest Theological Seminary. Now, verse 2. Verse 2 declares David's divine spirit indwelling inspiration. He speaks the word of God by inspiration of Ruach Yahweh, spirit of the Lord. His claim to divine inspiration hooks itself back to verse 1. In both verse 1 and verse 2, David uses two words for the word of God which is in him. He uses the noun words and the verb declares. The significant aspect of the verb declares, which is duplicated in verse 1, as you will note, is that it is a word used of oracular divine revelation, especially word of God through the Old Testament prophets. The term in Hebrew is na'um. David chooses a word with prophetic implications. Surely that is suggestive, is it not? Do you not see it? Israel's great king, Israel's great king, takes on the office of declaring prophetic oracle. David as prophet and king. This does not completely take us by surprise, I trust, because as Christians we know how the New Testament writers see David's psalms. The New Testament writers interpret David's psalms as prophetic poetry. Do I need to mention Psalm 2? Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, to mention only a few of the 75 or 78 that he penned. In verse 2, he uses the verb spoke of the noun he used in verse 1, words. This is an implicit hook pattern tying verse 1 and verse 2 together. But then he uses a second word for the divine revelation he has received. It is translated word in verse 2 in most versions, but it is a second word in this verse which is not found in verse 1, a word which is very, very old, extremely ancient Hebrew. And it occurs most frequently... It occurs most frequently in the book of Job, which is perhaps the oldest book in the Bible. So, two kinds of words for God's inspired word in verse 1, one of which has prophetic overtones, and two kinds of words for God's word in verse 2, one a hook lemma or hook root, and one of which is potentially very, very old. That is suggestive, is it not? The range of God's inspired word from the most ancient to the poetic to the prophetic. Ah, very interesting, very interesting.
But now please notice how David expresses the divine inspiration. Verse 2. It is by me in the New American Standard. No, that is not strong enough, New American translators. Not strong enough. For the Hebrew preposition, base preformative, the Hebrew preposition means in. God's word is in him. In his mind. In his heart. In his soul. By the Holy Spirit, the word of God has come within his mind and now flows from his pen. David is declaring that what he writes has been breathed into him, inspired, breathed in. It is God breathed, Lord breathed, Spirit breathed. David is the instrument of the breathed in word of God. Now, in this second verse, he not only says the word of God is in him, but he emphatically duplicates his claim. The word of God is on or upon. The word of God is on his tongue. Notice what is in him is declared by his tongue. In him, then on his tongue, then sounded forth, thus saith the Lord, then written down. <clears throat> we have in Second Samuel 23, 1 and 2, a precis of the process of divine inspiration, Holy Spirit in breathing of the word of God, proclaiming and recording God's very words, from within the author, the poet, the writer, the prophet, the inspired word of God now inscripturated, inscripturated for our edification. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And now this wonderful description of the one who rules in righteousness and the fear of God. How we need to be reminded of this in the present political climate, the scandalous, unrighteous, and imperious political climate of our day. Our eschatological hope is not anchored in the future of the United States of America. But the future of the United States of America is our concern as citizens of this nation. What kind of rulers are pleasing to God, even in his common grace benevolence? And what kind of rulers are displeasing to God, even in his common curse malevolence? We observe in this passage the religious character of the ruler. He rules in the fear of God, verse 3. 
We also observe that we do not live under a Davidic monarchy, even a religious monarchy. The separation of church and state is a New Testament doctrine. But the issue of personal character in rulers is common to both the Old Testament monarchy and the New Testament democracy. It is a common grace element, not a special or regenerating grace element. Rulers need no religious test for office, but that does not give them a free pass on character, integrity, justice, honesty, honesty, and humility. They are to rule, not dominate. They are to serve the people, not lord it over the people. They are to bend their ear to justice, not be contrivers, schemers, and plotters of injustice. David's character flows out of his theocentric orientation. If a ruler's character flows out of his anthropocentric character, the flaws of his character will soon be revealed. Soon be revealed. An anthropocentric ruler will be arrogant, imperious, tyrannical, manipulative, deceitful, ruthlessly driven by personal agenda, ego, and a sense of grandeur. Such a ruler will not be just or righteous. He will be the tool of ideology, radical ideology, which is vested in power groups, political control freaks, those with the totalitarian principles of the Enlightenment, which dictate, we know better than you, because we are the ruling elite, the political messiahs of this age, the ruling powers that will legislate your life, your future, even your will. We will control you. You will do what we will, you will, even if you have to have it imposed upon you against your will, we will control you. Such is the rule of the one whose horizon rises no higher than self, than ideological agenda, than radical transformation of the nation. Well then, if not a theocentric ruler under separation of church and state, what then? If not anthropocentric, what then? The common good. The good of all citizens in common and in general. This is Paul's principle. This is Paul's principle in Romans 13. Notice, it is not theocratic. It is not autocratic. It is democratic. The ruler is a minister to you for good. Romans 13, 4. For the common good. 
And such rulers, Paul continues, devote themselves to this very thing. Romans 13, verse 6, that is to govern, honoring the good of all the people. Should such a ruler be a Christian? That is not necessary. Yet the private Christian faith of a ruler will manifest itself in seeking the common good of his subjects, even as the integrity of a non-Christian ruler will manifest itself in seeking the common good of his subjects. The personal faith of a Christian ruler may enhance his obligation to promote the common good, but the absence of Christian faith in a ruler does not necessarily annul his sense of obligation to promote the common good. Or else Paul wouldn't have said it about the Roman emperors. However, when a ruler, Christian or non-Christian, betrays the common good and disregards or overrules the common good, then that ruler is no longer just, no longer righteous, no longer manifests the character of a ruler in humility, servant of the community, the community of the common good. Such a ruler, Christian or non-Christian, has embarked upon an imperious tyranny. Second Samuel 23 portrays the aura, the atmosphere, the glory of the rule of one who governs righteously. The word righteous or just here means upright, upright before the standards of God ruling by a standard superior to his own, the correctness, the rightness of God's standard. How the divine principles of justice and integrity inform the mind and the heart of the one who fears God, who fears God for the good of all. David's goal was such justice and righteousness, a goal realized in measure when he is described as reigning over all Israel and administering justice and righteousness for all his people. 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. Whatever decline, whatever retrogression from this standard David may have been guilty of, Nonetheless, he established a provisional administration of justice and righteousness over all the nation of Israel for a time. David did rule as a just and righteous king for a time. And his rule over Israel was as the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless day. Bright and clear was his rule, radiant and shining like the sun. No ominous clouds hovering over his kingship. No dark portents on the horizon of his kingdom. This government which he promoted was open and bright. Nothing hidden, nothing clandestine, nothing enacted in dark backroom corridors. 
This government which he promoted was uplifting like the spirits of one at sunrise on a cloudless day, born up to the beauty, the glory, the brilliance of the sun in the heavens, even as the character of this ruler was beautiful, glorious, brilliant as the sun. No dark, glowering storm clouds on the horizon. No overcast of gray depression and discouragement hovering over the land. No eclipse of personal grandeur now transformed into the shadows of doubt, betrayal, disappointment, and emerging personal character of ruling arrogance, contempt, audacity. David's rule was like daylight, not nighttime. Like sunrise, not sunset. Like the morning dawn, not the twilight gloom. Like the cloudless sky, not the dark fury of gathering thunderheads. And the rule of the one who governs in righteousness is like tender grass springing up, growing up from the earth in sunshine after rain. Verdant and lovely is this rule with the promise of growth, maturity, and fertility. A rule which nurtures the people like tender grass, a rule which husbands the nation to lush maturity, a rule which wisely, justly promotes the fertility and future industry of the people. Such a rule lets the natural processes take their course. What is built into the nature of the subject in freedom and liberty, like grass springing up freely and at liberty in the sunshine after rain. What promotes the prosperity, the fertility and lush prosperity of the nation is not ruthless plowing of the grass underfoot, not paving the earth with barricades of suppression which block out the sun, the life-giving, life-uplifting sun, No, what promotes the prosperity of the land is the hands-off policy, which allows the grass to grow freely and unhindered by the ruler's meddling interference, allows the rain to fall and the sunshine to beam upon a lush and verdant sward of green, green grass from shore to shore. Such is the rule of the one who rules to encourage Rules to promote, rules to stand aside so that freedom and prosperity may abound to the common good. The similes, actually the compound similes of the kingdom of the just and righteous ruler as the light of morning, verse 4, as the tender grass springing up, verse 4, are similes of loveliness radiance, prosperity, and liberty. This ruler is not intrusive. This ruler is not oppressive. This ruler is not a ruling meddler 
He is a ruler of character, shaped by righteousness and wisdom in promoting and fostering the good of all of his subjects. The antithesis of the unrighteous ruler in verse 6 and 7 is dominated by the image of the thorns. An image of the curse, as Genesis 3 indicates. This ruler is one who is wicked. Belial, verse 6, whose rule is like the thorn, sharp, painful, something to be avoided, even removed. Notice the thorns gathered for burning, verse 7. This rule goes up in smoke, leaves no legacy but the ash heap of dust, failure, resistance. One avoids the thorns. One needs the proper equipment to deal with the thorns, thick defenses and skillful offenses. One is wary of the thorny ruler, looks askance at the danger presented, the threat to health and prosperity that encroaching thorns present. The infamous northwest wild thorny blackberry bushes take over, completely rural patches of land where they are not restrained, not contained within carefully delimited parameters. And their thorns, those blackberry thorns, painful, snagging, piercing, grabbing, as if to fold you into their domain, their domain of jaggers and prickles and overgrown underbrush and death stifling death to everything else in their berry patch. Nothing but their thorny berry bushes allowed in their domain. Nothing. We will control you. The antithesis between the righteous ruler and the wicked ruler sandwiches the ruler whom David is, In verse 5, the house of David is an extension of the just ruler in verses 3 and 4. The house of David is a contradiction of the wicked ruler in verses 6 and 7. The house of David is the recipient of an everlasting covenant with God, that eternity feature that eternity feature of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, literally leaping out at us from the text of its origin. 2 Samuel 7, 13, twice in verse 16, 24, 25, 26, twice in 29. Do you get it? It is this aspect of verse 5 that betrays the eschatological character of this passage. Notice, an everlasting or eternal covenant is an eschatological covenant. And an eternal covenant requires an eternal person. An eschatological covenant requires an eschatological person. 
David is not an eternal person. He is not an eschatological person. Hence, this covenant with the house of David includes the eternal and eschatological person descended from the house of David. This covenant requires and includes the Son of God and His everlasting covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ and only the Lord Jesus Christ can be the object of David's statement, his prophetic statement here in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. The Lord Jesus Christ and only the Lord Jesus Christ can order and secure the covenant with David forever. The kingdom of David forever. The Lord Jesus Christ and only the Lord Jesus Christ can be all the salvation and all the desire, the longing of David and his everlasting covenant. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, satisfies the eternity, the eschatological feature of the covenant with David. Voss, Voss is brilliantly and absolutely right. You cannot justify the exegesis of this phrase without accounting for its eternity feature. And no millennium will satisfy that, whether post-millennial or pre-millennial. It will not satisfy it because it takes an eschatological dimension which is already in existence from before the foundation of the world. And the person who comes out of that arena is the only person who can accomplish the everlasting covenant of David. The eternity feature of the Old Testament can only be satisfied in heaven. It can never be satisfied on the earth because heaven is before the earth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, heaven. And that means that the rule, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our ruler, surpasses and excels this idealization of God's kingdom under David. This ideal language of 2 Samuel 23 points to what was fulfilled in measure under David, though imperfectly. But it points beyond David to his eschatological son in which this ideal language is real. This language is real in the kingdom and under the rule of the eschatological David. Is he not righteous? Oh, yes, he is. Is his character not one of perfect justice? Oh, yes, it is. Is he not the light of a dawning kingdom which will never pass away? Oh, yes, he is. Is he not the Lord of the kingdom of heaven? Oh, yes, he is. Is he not the day spring of a new day without clouds? Yes, he is. 
Does he not grow up like tender grass and like a root out of dry ground, bringing growth and grace and prosperity and grace and lavish abundance in his grace? Yes, he does. Is he not the sunshine after rain, bright, refreshing, renewing, uplifting light after the latter rain? Is he not the eschatological David perfect and complete in his embodiment of the projection and measured realization of the protological David? Is he not the perfectly righteous ruler, never the wicked and worthless ruler? Yes, he is. Is he not the bringer of salvation, not the bringer of thorns and curse? Yet he took the curse of those thorns. Took the curse of those thorns upon his brow and buried them deep in the darkness of his tomb. So that the resurrection light of Easter morn could break forth like the dawn. Light brighter than the sun in its glory. That resurrection light that blinded Paul on the Damascus road, that was transfigured before the disciples on the mount, that light beyond the radiance of the sun. For this David, this Messiah, this Savior, is a ruler of a kingdom not of this world, And in that kingdom, in that everlasting kingdom, no wicked rulers, no arrogant rulers, no ruthless and deceitful rulers, no impenitent, foul-mouthed, pornographic-mouthed rulers, no, none. None. No thorns or thistles in that kingdom, but rather the full and complete liberty, the full and complete liberty of the sons and daughters of God. I'll entertain any questions you may have or comments you'd like to make, or if you're hungry or need refreshed or need oxygen or just need a break. Pete? Uh, How can you uh, apply verse 3 when one rules over men in righteousness to a common grace situation when the rest of the context has to do with the eschatological everlasting kingdom? I believe that they are both there. Uh, The common grace element is there uh, behind or underneath the special grace element. In other words, the special grace element enhances the common grace element. And I think that that is true partly from reading backwards from the New Testament, particularly Romans 13, upon this passage, 
But I also think that it is true in terms of international rule, which was coterminous with David's rule. In other words, there were principles of common grace, rule of righteousness or uprightness in other kingdoms around Israel at this time. So I look at that uh, that that bifurcation or that two level type of uh, of common instinctual uh, uh, ruling integrity uh, behind the enhanced uh, dimension of it, which comes by spiritual regeneration and redeeming grace. I grant you that the context would seem to limit it to the one, as you point out, but I do think that underneath the one is the other. It is always in the background. Even as God, in creating, creates out of special and common grace domains. Take your break. As I was saying, 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 39, and now the fun begins. Oh, you thought I was really having fun the previous hour, huh? Well, I was, and I'm going to continue to have fun, 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 and not until my daddy takes my T-bird away either. All right. Now, the fun with the 30-plus names of David's mighty men is the challenge of the text and the romance of the sleuth. The text of 2 Samuel 23, 8-39 has numerous significant variations from its near parallel in 1 Chronicles 11, 11-41a. How have the two parallel texts been altered? or perhaps copied incorrectly? Why are they different in spots? Is there any textual resolution to these tensions? Now, my last question is answered with an emphatic no, at least not at this point in the history of textual criticism. The Dead Sea Scrolls do not appear to help us at this point even.
And so these lists have been a favorite playground of liberals proudly parading the differences between 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11 as prima facie evidence of errancy, not inerrancy. Simplistic minds always have simple solutions to complex problems, which is, of course, why most liberals are simple-minded fundamentalists. That is, fundamentalists of the left, just like their political counterparts, as we learned to our shame this week. For theological liberals have never met a doctrine that is not a mistake. They have never met a dogma that is not an error. And of course, theological liberals have long been the anointed elite to tell us that they will control our thinking. We benighted peasants and in fact dictate to us what to do and what to think. Do you detect the pattern here in liberalism that it's incipiently tyrannical? Whether it's political or theological, it's incipiently tyrannical. It wants to dominate you. They want to control the people theologically, all in the interest of their leftist fundamentalist agenda, which is to enhance the power of their club. Their ruling enlightened theology, their culture of death and moral anarchy. That's the agenda. But the challenge of the text before us leads beyond these simplistic peewits to the romance of theological detectives. A reader of the text who looks for the clues to a solution, a resolution to the apparent chaos of these names preserved for us by divine inspiration. Now, you might be tempted to say, just skip it. Skip it. Let us out early tonight. After all, I skip it. I skip these long lists all through the Bible when I come across them. Can't pronounce most of the names anyways. I don't even know who they are or why they're in the Bible. I skip them. You come to all those begatitudes, you just, well, you just skip right over them. Nine chapters of begatitudes of First Chronicles. Oh, my. Skip it. Now, I am sympathetic since I subjected my children to reading through those long lists in family worship. (laughs) And I understand the temptation. (laughs) But I remind you, as I reminded my children, that these names are part of the word of God. And so though I might not be able to pronounce them correctly all the time, and I may not know why all of them are there, they're there, and God put them there, and I'm going to read them. And you're going to listen to them because they're there. There's something there that God wants us to understand, so denial will not make them go away. The text still confronts you with its mystery, its difficulty, and its romance.
Well, then, let's put on our Sherlock Holmes caps or fire up the little gray cells like Hercule Poirot and dig in. We begin with the structure, structure of the text. First of all, we observe the parallel position of David's warrior mighty men on both sides of his celebratory poems. On either side of 2 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23, 1-7, like guardians of the king and his kingdom, the mighty warriors of David's military campaigns. Our narrator honors the soldiers of the king as he centers upon the poetic theology of the king in his secure and ordered, guarded and protected kingdom. The military honor roll forms a bracket It forms an honorary bracket around the king's valedictory. So the place of this list in the larger macro structure of 2 Samuel 21 to 24 is no mystery. There's no mystery about why it's here. The structure tells you that. Okay, so now you understand one of the reasons for reading through the names. The structure tells you why. But let me permit you to have some fun of your own with this text. Scan the list of names. Are any of these names familiar to you? Run your eye down the list and see if any familiar names jump out at you. And as you find them, just blurt them out. Don't be bashful. Asahel. Pardon? Asahel. Asahel, very good. There's Asahel, whom we know. Joab. Joab, we know. Abishai, we know. You're doing well. Eliam, we know. Who is he? He is supposedly Bathsheba's father. He is possibly the father of Bathsheba. And son of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, we know. Very good. Who else do we know here? We know Uriah the Hittite. Who else do we know here? I know Benaya. Benaya, yes, Benaya we know. All of us know him because we've seen Benaya before in chapter 20. How about Ittai in verse 29? Do we know Ittai? Not this one. Ah, we know an Ittai, but not this one. Ah, you see, you have to do the sleuthing. 
Because this one has a different father. The Gittite we know is a Gittite, which means he was from where? He was from Gath. From Gath in Philistia. He was a Philistine mercenary came to David. All right, now, you mentioned Joab, whom you spotted, whose name is here amongst the list, and yet, is he on the honor roll? He is not on the honor roll, but he is mentioned three times in the process of listing the names. Why is he not on the honor roll? He's what? He's a bad dude. He's a bad dude. It is conceivable that that is correct, that his being cashiered by David has removed him from the honor roll. And yet, having been cashiered by David, he elevates himself back up to the position of commander by assassinating his competitor, Amasa. So as far as we know, at this stage of the end of David's career, Joab is alive and well and still commander of the army and yet not on the honor roll. So let's go ahead. Commander of the secret police. Commander of the secret police. <laughs> My daughter always has nefarious. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think these are secret police, <coughs> um, uh, as we'll indicate later on. <coughs> uh, he is the commander of the army, and it is conceivable that these are underlings under him, and therefore he is not mentioned here because he's assumed to be part of the list automatically. Uh, I tend towards that suggestion, uh, as I will point out in a couple other uh, spots later on. But at any rate, uh, you did well in uh, picking out the familiar names. Now, let's take a look at the structure of verses 8 to 39. Do you perceive any structure in this section? What do you see in verses 8 to 12? A group of a group of three all three named. Verses 13 to 17. What do you see? A group of three, all unnamed. Ah, very interesting, very interesting. Verses 18 to 23. A group of three. You see three there? Name the three that you see there. A group of two who are related to the... Related to the 30. 
both Benaiah and Abishai related to the 30. And finally, verses 24 to 39, a group of 30. And what do you notice about that section? That section is framed, is it not? It is framed by two names that are known to us as dead heroes. Dead heroes. Asahel and Uriah. All right. There is no mystery about the organizing structure of what our narrator has done in composing this list of more than 30 names. All of these men, or are all of these men, alive at the end of David's career? I've already answered that question in our previous observation about 23, 24 to 39. Two of them are dead which means that the 30, the 30 is a shifting band, isn't it? That these names represent men who moved into positions when others died. Who they were, we're not able to determine. There are more than 30 names in verses 24 to 39. And consequently, we realize that because of the dead Asahel and dead Uriah, that there's fluidity here. This number 30 was subject to fluctuation. There was a question. Uh, Actually, between 24 and 39, there are actually 31 names listed. So you'll have to count more carefully. Now, let's ask the question of chronology. When do you think these mighty men attached themselves to David? Now you've got to fire up the gray cells and look for some clues from within the lists, which may suggest a period in David's narrative history when these men came to him. And as you look at verses 8 to 12, what clue do you find there? The Philistines, all right? Now, when does David first meet the Philistines? Before he's king? When does he first meet them? When he kills Goliath, right. Very early in his career. Are these men coming to David when David kills Goliath? Yes. 
Now use your gray cells. Now come on, come on. Be Sherlock Holmes. David goes out to meet Goliath with his mighty men. No, you know that's not right. So the Philistines here are not the Philistines David encounters with Goliath because he goes out to Goliath by himself. He hasn't got 30 mighty men alongside of him. Use your grave cells. Okay, all right. Well, what other clue do you see? Look at verse 13. We're asking the question, when did these men gather or attach themselves to David? Can we identify a, a narrative, biographical or autobiographical ripple here? When he's running from Saul. When he's running from Saul, he goes down where, Pete? Cave of to, to the cave of Abdullam. Correct. He goes down to the cave of Abdullam in 1 Samuel 22. And there he gathers 400 outcasts. Who flock to him, but notice in 1 Samuel 22, there is no conflict with the Philistines. David is on the run from Saul, as Pete pointed out, and in the very next verse, 1 Samuel 22, 3, he hightails it to Moab, goes across the Jordan. So, this does not fit the pattern of David's descent to Ajalom when he was fleeing from Saul. So when does he go down to Ajalom? Look at that note about where the Philistines were camping. They are in the valley of Rephaim. Okay, they are in the valley of Rephaim. Now, if you look back to 2 Samuel 5, verse 18, you will find an exact duplicate of the Philistines at Rephaim. 2 Samuel 5, 18. It's repeated in verse 22, and in that section, that is 2 Samuel 5, 18 through 25, David is having several campaigns against the Philistines, both of them in the valley of Rephaim. And you will notice that the word stronghold that is used here in verse 14 is exactly the same word in the Hebrew that is used for stronghold in 2 Samuel 5, 17. So David... <clears throat> In the valley of Rephaim, conflict with the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5 goes down to the stronghold. He goes down to the stronghold here in this passage. I therefore think that this passage is reflecting an incident after David is enthroned in Jerusalem. And when the Philistines try to capitalize upon his recent coronation and invade Palestine all the way to the valley of Rephaim, and David takes them from the south. All right, are there any other clues as to the time when these men attached themselves to David? Verse 24, is there a clue in verse 24? Some of this has to be subsequent to Asahel's death, doesn't it? And Asahel dies in 2 Samuel 2, just before the Ishbosheth revolt heats up. 
And Uriah is dead in verse 39, which takes us to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the siege of Rabbah. All right, so the clues that are here suggest that the time of Saul's attempt to kill David, which I don't think is likely for Samuel 22, or the time of David's conflict with the Philistines after he is made king in Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5, which I think is far more likely. However, the timeline does include Asahel, who is slain while David is king in Hebron, and Uriah while David is king in Jerusalem. But notice Benaiah and Abishai. Benaiah and Abishai are both alive at the end of David's career. Which means that other names on this honor roll may be names of men who lived to the end of David's reign. The terminus ad quo potentially Saul for Samuel 22. The terminus ad quem David's final conflict with Shiva. These men come in and out in this group of 30 mighty warriors and continue to be the great defenders, guardians, and colleagues, comrades of David in his campaigns. All right, now let's take a look at some other patterns that we see here. Uh, what you're observing as we go through this is there is a real rhyme or reason to the structure and to the outlay of this section of names. There is an artistry here. Okay, It is not just random dashing names out, uh, you know, uh, dropping names like some famous scholars who put names in footnotes, but they've never really read their books or at least they haven't read them in context. All right. Let's take a look at verses 8 to 12. Notice the pattern. The first warrior in verse 8, and then in verse 9, the phrase after him, and then in verse 11, the phrase after him. Structured sequential duplication. In fact, there's a triplication here. Notice verses 9 and 11. Israel, in both of those verses, is described as having abandoned the field. Verses 10 and 12, notice the refrain. Very same words in the Hebrew text, the Lord brought great salvation or great victory. It's like a chorus. And finally, as we've already observed, notice the Philistines who appear... In 9, 10, 11, and 12, does that mean that they were also there in verse 8, even though he doesn't mention them? Mmm. Mmm. All right, verses 13 and 17. Notice the frame. The word three which begins 13 and ends 17. It frames the anonymous three. Now, are these three the same as the three in verses 8 to 12? 
No, they are not. They are a different set of three because he would have renamed them had they been the same. And the fact that he preserves their anonymity is a testimony to the sublime act of devotion which they performed on David's behalf. A eudaimonism that does not need named. Now, in verses 18 and 19, I want to ask you to comment on how your text reads, particularly verse 18. Bishai, brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, chief of the... How do your texts read? Just spit it out. Three? Thirty? Okay, some of you have three, some of you have thirty. Some of you may have thirty with a note uh, to three. All right, here we have a little piece of detective work. And let's allow the text or the structure of the text to solve the mystery. Look at verse 19b. What number do you have there? You have three there, and you don't have any marginal note on that one, do you? Okay. You may have a marginal note on 18a, but you don't have a marginal note on 19b. All right. And what do you have sandwiched between the two? The 30 in 19a. All right. Now, there are other occurrences of three in this, but I'm looking at the outer limits and the central sandwich. So that what some versions say is 30 in 18a should actually be 3 because it structurally matches the end of 19 and sandwiches 30 in between itself. Notice that the 3 is in the Masoretic text. That is, that's in the standard Hebrew text. The variants come, the 30 comes from other variant traditions. Okay? So 30 doesn't make sense here structurally. 3 does. On the basis of our frame and sandwich. Yes, Link. Well, that's another good reason not to use the NIV. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. So. <clears throat> it says 333, three, three, and it also mentions 300, but nowhere does it say Verse 19, he was most honored of the 30. What's the NIV say there? He was chief of 19. Verse 19a, he was most honored of the 30. Therefore, he became their commander. It says, was he not held in greater honor than the 3? No, there's no question about 30 there again. So that's just a very bad reading. Uh, once again, they're trying to interpret the text with their translation. King James also has three there. Well, we can expect that from the King James. It's an inferior textual tradition. <clears throat> but with the NIV, it's conspiracy. <laughs> All right, now another thing to note. Verse 18, we've concluded, has 3 instead of 30, as the Masoretic text indicates. Take a look at verse 23b. Does your version say 3 there? All right, now notice, here are the two. Abishai and Benaiah, and their narrative is framed by the number three, 
which is another strong endorsement of the Masoretic text reading in 18a as 3, not 30. Now, if we look at 19 and we don't read the NIV, we notice the phrase honored of the 30. And then in 23a, we read honored of the 30. All right, there is a very neat structural literary paradigm here that our writer has incorporated into this record. These names have been carefully, carefully selected, arranged, and framed. They have been structurally duplicated and highlighted in such a way that we will see that this, this is not a a corrupt literary arrangement. This is a very uh, uh, well-crafted, well-drafted structural paradigm. And, of course, I've already pointed out the frame between verses 24 and 39, namely the two dead heroes who uh, begin and end that last section. All right, what about this number three? Why does it keep occurring over and over again? We know from 2 Samuel 18, verse 2, that David divided his army into three divisions during Absalom's revolt. They were under the command of Joab, Abishai, and Ittai the Gittite. Those were the division commanders of the three, okay, the three corps. Thus, it is possible to understand the three here, of 23, 8 to 12, as three division commanders in David's earlier campaigns against the Philistines. There is a hint of this in David's conflict with Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, 13, and his pursuit of the Amalekites who had plundered Ziklag and kidnapped the families of his soldiers in 1 Samuel 30, 9 to 10. In those passages, that is, in the Nabal incident and in the Amalekite pursuit incident, David takes 400 of his 600 men and leaves one-third of them, or 200 of them, to guard the baggage train while the rest pursue. Hence, we may surmise that David divided his 600 men into three divisions Three divisions of 200 soldiers under three ostensible commanders, perhaps those of chapter 23, verses 8 to 12, in the earlier phase of David's military career. There are clues here which are worth sifting and sleuthing for the romance of the mystery of the names of the mighty men. All right, now, you may want to put your finger for the rest of our time in 1 Chronicles 11 and be able to flip back and forth between this 23rd chapter and 1 Chronicles 11. Beginning in verse 8, let's take a look at some of these individuals. We don't have time to cover them all, but nonetheless, let's begin with Yoshev, Bashevet, the Tachemonite. He is named in 1 Chronicles 11... Yashoveam, the son of Hakmonai, 1 Chronicles 11, 11. Now you'll notice in 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, there's a line there that is added, Adino the Esnite. That is completely missing 
from 1 Chronicles 11.11, and is suggestive. Notice I emphasize suggestive. It is suggestive that the text in 2 Samuel 23 may be the older text. Why do I say that? Because it's easier to explain the writer of Chronicles abridging verse 8 than it is to account for the writer of 1 Samuel enhancing Chronicles. And one of the reasons is that the writer of Chronicles writes after Samuel, at least on the orthodox view of the composition of Samuel and Chronicles. So the chronicler has abbreviated the list here. And therefore, he's working with an older document, an older text. For whatever reason, he drops the surname or the alternative name of Yashev Bashevet out of his text. Now, in 1 Chronicles 27, verse 2, there is a Yashoveam, same name that he has in 1 Chronicles 11, who is described as a division commander of 24,000 of David's troops. In that chapter, 1 Chronicles 27, there are actually 12 groups of those 24,000 troop leaders, month by month. For each month of the year, they take their terms, and Yashoveam is the leader of the first month division, 24,000. He is the premier leader of the troop lists of David in in 1 Chronicles chapter 27. But as if we didn't have enough flies in the ointment, even up to this point, namely the textual issue in 1 Chronicles 27.2, Yashoveam is called the son of Zavdiel, not the son of Hakmoni or a Tokemonite. Thus, Hakmoni in 1 Chronicles 11.11 may be a Gentilic, not a patronymic, that is, He refers to his place of origin. But I must admit that Zabdiel in 1 Chronicles 27.2 confuses the issue, and there we have to let it rest. There our sleuthing must cease for the time being. Now there is one other mention of Yashoviam in Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 6, Yashoviam comes to David at Ziklag. Now this would reinforce my suggestion that it was the Amalekite campaign, if not before, that David named these three as division commanders, including Yoshev Basheveth, who is Yashoviam, and Eliezer and Shammah. Abishai is over the three. Notice 2 Samuel 23:19 parallel to 1 Chronicles 11:21. So, Abishai is the commander of these three prominent though they be. Verse 9 of 2 Samuel 23. Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. The same passage is in 1 Chronicles 11 verse 12. Dodai is a patronymic, and Ahohite is a gentilic. The location of Ahohai is unknown, unidentified. 
Now, according to 1 Chronicles 11.13, Eliezer comes to David at Pasdamim, which most commentators regard as a synonym for Ephetz, Damim. Now, that's taking you back almost six months, but Ephetz, Damim, was the region where Israel and Philistia first squared off in the David and Goliath incident. It's mentioned in 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. However, this meeting at Ephetz, or Pasdamim, cannot be that of 1 Samuel 17. Because, once again, as we pointed out before, David meets Goliath there alone. There are no mighty men around him at the time. This approach must be subsequent. David must have revisited the site for some reason, and there was joined by Eliezer. Verse 11, Shammah the Ha'arite is omitted completely in First Chronicles 11. Incidentally, you know a Shammah already. He is David's older brother. In fact, he is the third son of Jesse. This is not the Shammah of the mighty men. Ha'arite is a reading supported by the Dead Sea Scrolls, so it is confirmed, but it refers probably to a gentilic of unknown origin. Nobody knows where this place was. That brings us to the story of the Anonymous Three. And you'll notice that it is exactly paralleled in 1 Chronicles 11, 15 to 19. This incident likely occurs with events of 2 Samuel 5, 17 to 25, as I've already suggested, David's campaign against the Philistines when the Philistines invade Israel after David's coronation in Jerusalem. David takes his army to the wilderness near the cave of Ajalom, where the Philistines establish an outpost garrison in his hometown. They establish a garrison in Bethlehem. Pretty brazen, but of course, this is a brazen challenge to a newly crowned king. And so they're testing him. David, while he's in that hot wilderness, remembers the fresh water at the well by the gate of Bethlehem. Water he must have tasted frequently as a boy. He longs for a drink from that refreshing stream while he endures the scorching heat of the wilderness around the cave of Ajalon. His wish becomes the command of the anonymous three, who not only head for Bethlehem, but fight their way through the Philistine lines all the way to the well at the gate of Bethlehem. Stunning. And you think Navy SEALs and Rangers are cool, huh? Hmm. They return unscathed to David with his water in tow, but David will not drink it. Rather, he pours it out to the Lord. What is he doing? He's saying it belongs to God. It does not belong to me. That's what he's doing. David declares, as it represents the very lifeblood of those who ventured 
on my behalf in devotion to me, I devoted to God. And he does so in thanksgiving to the Lord that the lives, the lifeblood of these devoted anonymous three had been spared. Spared by the Lord. Notice how the narrator frames David's speech. In verse 17a, he would not drink it. End of verse 16. He would not drink it. End of verse 17. David's speech in 17a. Notice how it's framed. It's bracketed. He would not. Because he gave it to the Lord. The sublime act of devotion will not be exploited by David. It will not. As thirsty as he may be, it will not be exploited. But their devotion will be devoted. Their devotion will be devoted to the God who spared them. A libation representing the blood risked for their king. Their king pouring it out before the Lord as God the Lord did not pour out their lifeblood on David's behalf before the Philistines. Devotion, gratitude, nameless, anonymous gratitude, devotion, a remarkable story vividly remembered in the annals of David's mighty men. Do you remember those three? You remember those three who went all the way to Bethlehem's gate? You remember them? We remember them. Though unnamed, we remember them. And so did David, who poured out that water unto the Lord. Tremendous narrative, just tremendous. Verse 18, Abishai, we know. Parallel to 1 Chronicles 11, 20 to 21. Verse 20, Benaiah, oh, he fascinates. Does he not fascinate you? Intrepid warrior, bodyguard, courageous, and even daring, mighty man, Benaiah. The reputation extends beyond the death of David to Solomon's reign. We shall meet him again. He is honored above the 30 in verse 23. Only the three, only the three excel him. He is labeled the commander 24,000 for the third month in First Chronicles 27.5. Kabzeal is a village near Beersheba in the Negev or southern region of Judah. According to Joshua 15, verse 21, you have to do your detective work with your concordance with these people. His three heroic deeds commend him to command the Cherethites and the Pelethites, David's bodyguards. We know that from 2 Samuel 8, 18 and 20, 23. Now, his first act of bravery, literally, in the Hebrew, to Ariel of Moab... To Ariel of Moab is a challenge to translate. It may mean two lions of Moab. The Hebrew word Ariel, Hebrew for lioness. 
If Ariel is a personal name, the New American Standard insertion in italics of two sons of Moab may be a good guess. But if there is symmetry here, if there is symmetry between the first and second act of heroism, then we may dub Benaiah the lion hunter par excellence. Because he kills another lion, a male lion this time, on a snowy day by jumping down into the pit in which it was trapped. This incident is memorable, as memorable as snow falling in Southern California. When it happens, it's long remembered. Do you remember that day in 1967 when it snowed four inches in Southern California? Well, yeah, I remember that. Of course you remember it. If you experienced it, you remember it. On a snowy day in Israel, Israel is on the same latitude as San Diego. Do you realize that? Same latitude as San Diego County. Snow in Israel, maybe up on top of the mountains occasionally, like it does in San Diego County too, but not down on the lowlands, not down where you trap lions in pits. No, I remember that day when that lion was caught in that pit and that guy Benea jumped right down in the middle of that pit. That lion, how long had that lion been trapped in there? I'll bet he was hungry. He was not only angry, he was hungry. And here comes meat. And Benaiah says, you're dead meat. And notice he stands in the middle of the pit. He stands in the middle of the pit because that lion is backing himself into the corner of every part of that pit or cave or whatever it happened to be. And Benaiah is right standing in the middle of it so he can turn any way that lion turns. He knows how to handle lions. Just like his king David knew how to handle lions. Oh, now there is a narrative ripple, isn't there? His third act of bravery is in dispatching an Egyptian by disarming him and killing him with his own weapon. This Egyptian is five cubits tall, according to First Chronicles 11.23. How, how tall is he? A cubit is... He's seven and a half feet because a cubit is a foot and a half, 18 inches. So he's seven and a half feet tall. All right, Asahel, we know, verse 24. Notice his hometown, Bethlehem. Now, it's not mentioned here, but if you go back to where he dies and is buried in 2 Samuel 2.32, he was buried in Bethlehem. So he's a hometown Bethlehem boy, well known to David. In fact, all of David's nephews are well known to him. They come from the same area. Which brings me to the grouping paradigm in these lists. Notice in verse 24 that if Asahel is from Bethlehem, so is Elhanan. So our author groups pairs from the same Territory. Verse 25, Herod. Verse 28b and 29a, Natofa, a village southeast of Bethlehem. Verse 33, Hararites, an unknown lake location or an unknown, otherwise unknown clan name. It's not clear which. And verse 38, the Ithrites from Kiryath Yaram. Kiryath Yaram. 
This raises the issue of the geographical regions from which David's mighty men originated. The majority of them are from Judah, David's native territory, from Bethlehem, from Paltai, verse 26, which is near Beersheba in southern Judah, from Tekoa, verse 26, also in Judah, from Husha, southwest of Bethlehem, also in Judah, from Natofa, verses 28 and 29, also in Judah, we've already mentioned, from Gilo, verse 34, also in Judah, from Arba, verse 35, also in Judah, many of them from David's native territorial region. The others fall into two groups. Notice verse 34, Maaka, verse 36, Zoba, verse 37, Ammonite, verse 39, Hittite. Where did the Hittites live? North, where north? What country today? Where did Uriah come from? Anyone? No. No. Turkey. The Hittite Empire was in the central Anatolian plain. Okay. Modern day Turkey. He came all the way from modern day Turkey. All right. So notice those names there. Those are all foreign mercenaries incorporated into David's mighty men. How they came to him, we do not know. Possibly because of his extending his empire to the river Euphrates. But nonetheless, he recruits from the foreign nations and incorporates them into the guardians of his kingdom. Which leaves the final group in this list of 30. We've got a group from Judah. We've got a group of foreigners. And the final group is from other parts of Israel. Most of them from Ephraim and Benjamin. All right. Now we count. 31 names from verse 24 to 39, reading in verse 32, sons of Yashin as Elihaba and Jonathan. They are the sons of Yashin. Those two are the sons of Yashin. All right, adding to those 31, Benaiah, Abishai, Yashoveam, Eliezer, and Shammah. We have 36. So how does our author get 37 in verse 39? I won't even respond to that. It, it does not even deserve a response. That's not according to the NIV. Who cares what the NIV said? All right. 36. The Lord? No. David. No. You picked him up before. He's not on the honor roll, but he is Joab. Yes. Joab implicitly number 37. All right. I think that's how we come up with the 37, though one can't be dogmatic. Okay. The function of these soldiers. They secure and order the victory of David over his enemies. Protological David advances his kingdom by blood and the sword. The eschatological David advances his kingdom by the spirit and the word. The kingdoms which the protological David subdues are earthly. The kingdom which the eschatological David subdues is spiritual. The 
progress from the protological David to the eschatological David is a biblical, theological, redemptive, historical progression in which better things have come. Not the carnal weapons of the flesh, but the pneumatic weapons of the spirit. The greater battle of the mighty men and women of the end of the age is against principalities and powers. It is against the rulers of this present evil age. Christ himself fought that battle with the chief enemy of the spirit, with Satan himself and the forces of death and hell. That eschatological David has conquered all his foes, and in him all those foes are conquered for the sons and daughters of the kingdom of great David's greater son, the kingdom of heaven. If you have any questions, uh, you're welcome to pose them. If you need to go, you're welcome to do it. I realize I'm a little bit over time. Uh, Ling, go ahead. Jehoiada, the father of Benaiah, um, is he a priest? There is a suggestion he is a priest in the First Chronicles occurrence of the name. Uh, so I'm willing to credit that, but uh, I'm not absolutely confident of it, 100%. So it's okay for the priestly line to be part of the warrior? Club. Well, it, it, it was all right for a, a, a priest to send his son into the, camp, into the cadre, let's put it that way. <laughs> Any other questions, comments? All right, uh, we're, we're drawing near to the end. I don't know exactly how many uh, meetings we'll have yet, uh, one or two. I don't think we'll have more than two, but we'll have to see. Uh, we'll move on to uh, the census uh, in Chapter 24 next week for sure and maybe into 1 Kings. We're going to go into 1 Kings 2 to complete the story of David.